Thank you, Pastor Luke and praise team for that incredible reminder. Uh, yeah, that stark contrast, a king who reigns from a manger throne. This is what I think is so subversive about the gospel is this is not the story that you would create or that you would concoct or that you would imagine or think of if you thought about there was a king who created the universe. You wouldn't put him so vulnerable and so innocent in a manger for his birth. Have him step into his creation. You would never think of it, and yet that's the wisdom of God. Amen? Uh, worship. Worship. When we think about worship we got to recognize kind of what worship is and how our hearts work. So worship is the extreme admiration, adoration, or praise for someone or something in particular. In our context, worship goes to God, and yet our hearts are very fickle things. The Bible actually talks about our hearts being deceitfully wicked, that we could think that we're giving proper due respect to something, but it turns out in reality we could actually be worshiping it. Um, it's interesting because John Calvin, who was a reformer around the 1500s, he looked at the church and he said, this thing is a mess. It's because they're not actually being driven by the word of God. And he looked at the, the culture and he looked at the human heart and he said that the human heart is like a factory of idols. That we can literally create idols and idolatry out of anything we want. We think about sports, right? We can create an idol out of sports and we worship and in fact, we actually spend so much time and so much money on that that we can see how worship happens. You think about football on a Sunday. You think about the banners waving. You think about smoke coming out and fire, you know, being like erupting as the guys come out of the tunnel and everyone gathers together. I mean, the big house, right? What is it, 100,000 plus that can fit inside of there? And what are they doing? Cheering, celebrating, right? What? A ball getting thrown by teenage men, right? Maybe 20, okay? But seriously, like so much money, so much time, so much energy and emotion is dumped into that. But it isn't just sports. Like some of us who love the intellectual realm and love kind of the field of thought, right? You, you can actually make an idol out of your schoolwork. I know for some of us, like even for me growing up, there was no way I was gonna create an idol out of my schoolwork. You know what I mean? <laughs> But for some of us, we can pour so much time and effort and energy to get the attaboys and girls from our professors, from our teachers. Some of us have been so successful in that field of study that we excel, right? Valedictorian, we shoot for it, we aim for it. Uh, you'll, settle for, you'll settle for like salutedictorian or whatever, salutedictorian, but you're really aiming to be top dog in your class. You want to be the number one person in your class. I remember going to Moody with a guy who was like, he was kind of braggy about his grades. It was really hilarious. I was like, uh, yeah, I brag about how I like almost failed every class and I still graduated. Like, I don't know why you would brag about your grades, but he was so braggy. And it was really funny because he was bragging about his grades one time. We were in a we're in the subway system in Chicago, and he's going on and on and on about how he graduated, you know, uh, in, in the top 10 of his class. He's going on and on about it. And there's this little short gal who's real quiet, very spunky, but very quiet. And she's just chilling and sitting there. And he's going on and on and on and saying, well, I was a top 10 in this. And because I did that and I did this and I did this project. And everybody else is like, dude, are you serious, right? This is not impressive at all. To me, at least of all. But this gal is just listening the whole time quietly. And she's like, that's nice. I was also top 10 in my class. And, and immediately he's like, oh, well, well I mean, what, what were you? And she's like, well, what were you? And he was like, wow, I, I was seventh in my class. 
She's like, I was in the top five. And he's like, what? She's like, yeah, I was actually top one. <laughs> and immediately, you should have seen, like, just crumbled. It was great. But the thing was, he had, he had begun to create an idol out of all of his studies, right? But this happens to all of us just in different ways. Some of us, it might not be the academic realm. It might not be in intellectual pursuits or sports. Some of us, it might be like physical exercise, right? What you can bench, what you can lift, how much you can squat, how, much, how far you can run and how quick of a time. Never understood the running one, right? Never understood that one personally. Here's the thing. You want to run a marathon, right? Do you know the guy who ran the first marathon, right? He got back to the capital, Athens, and you know what happened to him? He died. He died. And we're like, that sounds like a great idea. Let's do it, you know? What? Never understood the running thing. But hey, good for you. Good for you, right? But you can, you can create an idol out of anything. Some of us, it might be in the relational environment. Our family might become an idol, which I think in this area in particular can actually affect the mission of the gospel, right? If we can't carve out time for pursuing others who don't know Jesus because we're spending all of our time with our family, Maybe I'll submit to you that there might be an idol there, right? Broken relationships can crush us, right? Uh, friendships, best friends, uh, spending how much time, how much effort and energy trying to, again, get their affection, get their attention. Uh, when we think about not just those relationships, but boyfriend, girlfriend, right? What they think about you matters so much. Fiance, spouse, trying to get them, right, to be what satisfies you and brings all of your joy and comfort and hope. And here's the thing. When anything fails us in this life, it immediately smokes out from within the idols of our hearts. And this morning, we are going to look once again at Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at the storyline of Jesus' kind of young life as he was a toddler. We're going to see how he is truly the king that we must see and worship, that we must see and worship. So if you have a Bible, whether it's a physical or maybe even a digital copy on a mobile device, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be reading the entire passage this morning. So again, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, what we've been doing over the last few weeks, we've been in Matthew chapter 2. We've been looking at the first 12 verses, and then again, the first 12 plus 6 and 18 verses. And then this morning, we're going to go ahead and look at the entire storyline. And in each of these stories, we're looking... Uh, each of the time we look at the story, we're looking for the different kings that kind of take forefront at different elements in the storyline. And Matthew does a wonderful job of weaving this all together, but all of them are attempting to be uh, kings of Christmas. And all of them are kings of this Christmas storyline in some aspect. And they're different. We looked the first week at the wise kings, and as we looked at the wise kings, we saw that they were those who were curious about creation. They looked and they wondered about the way that the world was built. And we said, listen, if you're someone who's a skeptic, if you're someone who's questioning, look at the mountains. Well, maybe not in West Michigan. Look at the lake, all right? Uh, look at how crops grow. Uh, I heard a story one time of a guy talking about a scientist and God and how they were uh, having a test about creation. And God challenged the scientists uh, to create. And the scientists had said, okay, we can create a man just like you. And God said, okay, uh, go ahead. So they said, well, if we take this dirt right here, and God said, ah, 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 get your own dirt. So the question is, what aspect of creation should drive you to wonder about whether or not there's a creator? And in every generation, 
you're going to see this struggle and this wrestle of, of where did this all come from? The wise men allowed the star to drive them to pursue the child who had been born the king of the Jews. Last week, we looked at not the wise kings, but we looked at the wicked king in Herod. And we saw that he had really been animated by a spirit of hatred and vengeance and paranoia that tried to stop the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in this Christ child who we call Jesus. And the takeaway and the challenge for all of us last week was to be confronted with the fact that all of us have at one point or another attempted to stop the inbreaking of the kingdom of God within our own lives. We rejected him from the beginning as we were born, and we continue to reject his kingship in so many different areas. And this morning, we're going to look at really the person who is the central kind of character of not only this chapter, but all of Scripture. And yet he's barely mentioned in the passage itself. So if you found your place in Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to invite you to stand alongside of me as I read God's word for us. If you're new to grace, we stand out of reverence and respect when we read the word of God knowing that this is the very word of God. All 66 books were breathed out by God and were given to us for our full life of faith and living. This we believe. And so we read this morning in Matthew chapter 2, it says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you had found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house... They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. 
And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is God's word. You may be seated. And before we jump into this passage, would you please bow with me in a word of prayer? Father, we come before you. We are grateful for your word. And Father, you and I both know that I sin and that I fall short often, Lord, of your glory. And yet, Jesus, I thank you that it is because of your righteousness that I can stand and proclaim you this morning. So, Jesus, I pray you would truly exalt yourself among us. Spirit, I pray that you would fill and empower me now in order to speak clearly and truthfully in accordance with your word and for the accomplishment of your will, for the encouragement and the building up of this body. Lord, for the conviction of those who need to see you as their king and for the comfort of those you have already brought into your kingdom. Jesus, I pray that we would all see you as you truly are this morning, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we pray this all in your mighty name and all God's people said. So the big idea throughout this entire passage as we look at this child who comes up over and over in Jesus is this, that we would see the king and that we would worship him. That we would see the king and worship him. In order to really understand what's going on when it refers to this child throughout this passage, I really want us to kind of wrestle with some of the tensions we feel. The first thing that we see is that this king was a prophesied king. This child was someone who had been prophesied about. In verses 5 and 6, we read about this prophecy that the scribes had immediately told King Herod when he asked them, where is the child supposed to be born? They said, in Bethlehem. That's just one. There are four prophecies that Jesus is said to have fulfilled that are actually quoted from the Old Testament in chapter 2. But it isn't just these four that we have to really think about. The star was also prophesied in the passage as well, so that would make five. But if we think about the Christ child himself, it wasn't only five prophecies he fulfilled. You see, I think many of us fail to understand the statistical probability and what a statistical anomaly it was for Jesus himself to fulfill many prophecies. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to really wrap our minds around just how powerful and how improbable it was that Jesus himself would fulfill the prophecies that we see in this passage today. I want us to consider uh, what the odds would be And I want us to consider exactly how crazy these odds would be for Jesus to fulfill them. In the 1960s, there was actually a study that was done by a mathematician who was also a math professor. His name was Dr. Stoner. It was, after all, the 60s, so it seems pretty fitting. You know what I mean? Uh, So Dr. Stoner grabbed 16 of his students, and he went off and they did a study, and they tried to figure out and determine what the probability would be of just one of the prophecies in the life of Jesus to take place. But in order to do that, they said, okay, let's just think of eight prophecies from anybody's lifetime that lived between Jesus and now in the 1960s. That time period was much the same as many of the prophecies Jesus fulfilled. And so in the process of doing their investigation, they said, well, let's narrow it down. Let's pick eight. And so they picked the eight following, they picked the eight following prophecies, okay? One, they said the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Now, I don't know about you, but I know I didn't get to choose where I was born. Okay, you'll get that one on the way home, all right? Jesus did not get to choose where he would be born. 
Number two, they said that there would be a messenger that will prepare the way for the Messiah. This was another prophecy Jesus fulfilled. Number three, the Messiah will enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Number four, that he will be betrayed by a friend and suffer wounds in his hands. It's very specific. Another specific one, that he will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. That money that he was betrayed with will also be used to purchase a potter's field. Think about how specific that prophecy is. It's not a generality that's highly specific. That money is not only 30 pieces of silver, but that 30 pieces of silver is actually going to be utilized to buy not just any old field, but a potter's field. So specific. Number seven, they said, they looked at this other prophecy that he will remain silent when he was afflicted. And number eight, that he will die by having his hands and his feet pierced. This last one I just want us to think about just for a second. So the Roman Empire did not exist when this prophecy was put in place. So in Psalm twenty-two sixteen, when it makes a reference to this Messiah, this messianic figure who would come and fulfill this prophecy, it says that he would die by having his hands and his feet pierced. But the problem was the Romans were the ones who invented crucifixion. So the form of death that's being referred to in Psalm 22 hadn't even been invented yet. This wasn't something that they could just pull from their experience. This was something that God, by the power of his spirit, led the Psalter to write in Psalm 22. Many of these are completely out of the control of the messianic figure. Again, where you're born. Uh, people could say, well, what about the, jo- the donkey? Jesus could have read the scrolls, known that the Messiah was supposed to enter on, on a donkey. It's like, okay, well, for every one of those that you could potentially dismiss as Jesus having known about and fulfilled himself, you could also look at many others that he was completely, un- he had no control over. So you think about the fact that the Messiah was also supposed to be born of the tribe of Judah. So did Jesus then choose his, all of his descendants, who his parents would be? He was supposed to be a descendant of King David himself. So again, anytime you would try and posit that Jesus had actually known about and intentionally fulfilled prophecies, even if you wanted to exclude those, you still have other prophecies that you have to contend with. In Dr. Stoner's work, he put together all of these prophecies and what the odds would be. And he said that the number of the prophecies would be something like, okay, well, let's talk about probability for a second, all right? Let's, I'm going to leave you in a cliffhanger there. Probability, right? I'm not like a math whiz, math, math genius sort of dude, so probability. If you had a bowl and there were 10 ping pong balls inside of, the bowl, inside of the bowl itself and one of them were red and the others were white, the probability of you grabbing the red one would be what? One in, good job, great. There's a lot of work at church, I know, for you to think, right? But that's how probability works. And so in order for for Dr. Stoner to put all these prophecies together, they had to try and figure out exactly what the odds of each of them were. Within a lifetime that's lived, within this many days, within this region, how many people lived at that time, how many people were born at that time, and they they came up with a way to figure out probability for each of these eight prophecies. And in the process of doing this, they found out that the probability of, of Jesus fulfilling just these eight was one in 10 to the 17th power. I know. I, when I read that, I was like, okay. So this is one with this many zeros behind it, 17 zeros behind it, all right? I know. I saw this and I was like, it's like a made-up number, you know? Like, what is that even? So I looked up what this is actually called. This is 100 quadrillion. 
It sounds like something that you make up as a little kid. I'm going to hit you like 100 quadrillion times. You know, it sounds fake, right? The numbers that are put together are not just improbable. This is impossible. I want us to kind of like wrap our minds around this a little bit more. So there was a, a TikToker. I don't have an account, all right, so don't judge me. Uh, a TikToker, a YouTuber who put together uh, trying to kind of quantify exactly how much money Jeff Bezos has. Like, what is his worth? And so what he did to visual, visually represent it was he took one grain of rice and said, all right, let's say this one grain of rice equaled $100,000. And then he scaled it up and up and up and up. And he counted individually grains of rice over and over and over until he got to 1 billion. And then he thought, well, how do I scale this? And so he actually had to go to Costco, shout out Costco, Kirkland brand, let's go. And he had to go get two big bags of rice and it ended up being 58 pounds of rice that represented the wealth of Jeff Bezos at the time, $122 billion, all right? So then I was like, that's still not helpful because I still can't fathom like the numbers, right? It just seems silly. And then I was like, okay, I remember hearing uh, this kind of idea presented before. In order for Jesus to fulfill just these eight prophecies, let's think about it like this. If you took a half dollar, right, a 50 cent piece, which I know, they, they don't really just float around anymore, right? So 50 cent piece, and you took a surface area that was the size of the state of Texas, and you filled it with half dollars, two feet deep, and then you took one half dollar and you colored it red and you threw it out. You buried it somewhere in that surface area, two feet deep, state of Texas. The odds would be like you getting in a helicopter, being blindfolded, flying over the top, and at the first draw, picking up the red one. That's the kind of probability we're talking about, about Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies, these eight prophecies in his lifetime. That is, one million billions is what the number would be. This is not just improbable. This is impossible. The most astounding part of this is that in Jesus' lifetime, he didn't just fulfill eight prophecies. He fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his lifetime. So here's the deal. For some of you who are skeptics, who like to pit science against faith, right? For some of you who really struggle to wrestle with the truthfulness of the Christian claims, the positing of truth the Bible would espouse. For some of you who really use your mind and fail to give Jesus your heart, right? The probability of Jesus coming is not just impossible, it's a miracle. That's what we believe. So here's what I would like to... I don't have enough faith to not place my faith in Jesus. When you look at the statistical probability of him fulfilling all eight, and not just eight, but 300, how could you not at least reasonably conclude that maybe this is the king of all creation who created you, who's worthy of all your worship? How could you not rightly conclude? And the invitation would be for those of you who are skeptics, who kind of ride the fence of faith, maybe you're even growing up in a household of faith, but you're kind of like, shh, kind of quiet when it comes to your actual believing in Jesus and giving your heart to Jesus and following Jesus. And maybe you, like others, struggle with doubt and whether or not 
this actually is true, you have to wrestle with these facts. Jesus existed. He was born. He lived and he died. Secular historians from his age talk about him. And the entire Western world has been transformed by his life. You have to wrestle with that. The invitation then for you is to understand that this king was prophesied about, but this king was also pursued. Look at verse 8 with me. Look at verse 8. It says that Herod sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently. Again, a few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that, that the wise kings pursue. They sought out through the scriptures truth. They sought out diligently Christ. And we concluded then that if you are seeking truth, you will inevitably find Jesus and you will have to say something about him. This king, this child is worthy to be pursued because he is in and of himself the truth. So when we seek truth, we will find this king. And some of you have been looking and searching and looking and searching for truth and for answers. Maybe it was through COVID that it kind of woke you up when you realized that there are authorities and experts and professionals who may not actually be fully trustworthy in everything that they say. Maybe a life-changing diagnosis or, or somehow a crippling disease has gotten a hold of you or some bad news, and that's what woke you up. Maybe for some of you, you struggle with your own shortcomings, your own failures, your own difficulties, your own struggles with depression and anxiety, fretting over everything, and it made you realize that somehow you are not getting anything out of this life that you thought you would, and the question that you are asking is, is this all that there is? Am I not made for something more than this? And whereas a few weeks ago we talked about the wise kings that they sought out and pursued truth, this morning I would encourage many of you who are searching for meaning and purpose in your life to look at this Christ child as the all-defining reality of what you are actually looking for in every pursuit of your life. It's Jesus is what I would submit to you. I remember in high school, you guys remember Switchfoot? Yeah, yeah, you guys remember Switchfoot? They had this song that I loved, and I remember singing it when I was in high school, and like, we were meant to live. You remember that song? So much more, and like rocking out, you know, in the showers, just, oh, you know, going for it. And then around other people, I'd like tap my foot, you know, like, we were meant to live. But what was wild to me is on my football team, we, would, we had a weight room, and it, there was never good music playing in the weight room, right? Never godly music especially, right? It's not like you're going to walk into your football locker room and be like, WCSG, let's go, you know? Not a chance. <laughs> and so I remember loving that song, but what blew my mind was one day I walked into my weight room to work out for football, and, and that song was on. And not only did all these pagans know it, but they were like singing it, right? Like loudly, unashamedly. And I'm like, this is so weird. And Switchfoot, which was a Christian band that kind of crossover over into culture, I realized like there was something about this song that resonated with the hearts of young men and young people and really just humanity in general. And it not only spread all throughout our country, but it went global and it became like a global hit, right? Think about the words. It starts off by saying, fumbling his confidence and wondering why the world had passed him by, hoping that he's bent for more than arguments and failed attempts to fly. If you want to talk about young men, you want to talk about young people and the deep insecurities and crippling insecurities, 
This struck a chord within our hearts because we felt, right, we all in one sense feel like there has to be something more to this life. And this song speaks to that exact reality when it says we were meant to live for so much more. And then ask the question, have we lost ourselves somewhere we live inside? And that, that shattering disappointment that we sense and that we feel when we see and we hear of wars going on all over the world, when others fail you, your leaders fail you, your parents fail you, the system fails you, and even you fail you. All of these should point us to the reason why this song resonated with not only those coming from a Christian worldview, but with something far beyond that. This song resonated with so many because it touched on the meaning and purpose of life, and it touched something that many of us dare to hope and dare to believe in, that we indeed were made to live for more than this life seems to offer. If you are here this morning and you struggle with the meaning of life and you struggle with having purpose, I am here to tell you, you were made to worship. The problem is you're worshiping the wrong things. You're worshiping the wrong things. From the moment that we're born, we have this deep desire for meaning, to matter somewhere, to belong somewhere, to be significant, to have love, to give love, and yet, for some of us, it just feels like opportunity after opportunity slips through our hands. And we're left in disappointment and disillusionment. For others of us, you've grasped those opportunities and taken a hold of those opportunities and become successful in your field. And yet, there may be those moments when you recognize this still ain't it. There's got to be more. There's actually a famous video um, of a quarterback from the NFL. Most of you guys know him because he played at Michigan, Tom Brady. And he was doing an interview. And um, if we can cue up that video, I want you to just, guys to just watch, watch this. Three Super Bowl rings. Married an international supermodel and superstar. Worth millions and millions of dollars. Homes, boats, cars, all kinds of toys. Famed, renowned praise. And he still says, there's got to be something more than this. It's interesting because he prefaced that by saying, God. And what's sad to me 
is that he doesn't realize that he's saying the very thing that he's missing in all of it. There is something more. It is God himself. Um, Augustine, one of the great church fathers, really kind of helped shape the entire Western world. He was a millionaire playboy. He had no wants, no needs in his life. Uh, he was kind of just a frat boy in the, early, in the ancient world. And yet, he was gripped by the same fact. And ultimately, it, he ended up meeting Christ in a profound way. And he wrote a book about his conversion and about his faith called Confessions. And in this book, here's what he says. He says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And there are some of you who are here this morning who are restless, searching for meaning, looking for purpose. You've been let down, you've been beat down, or you've succeeded and hit the pinnacle of your stride. And yet there's this nagging sense in every single human heart that wonders, is there more than this? And Augustine nails it on the head. You were made to worship this child, this Christ who came, the Messiah, who has come to give his life for you. You were made to worship the king. This king, we have to ask ourselves as a child, why would we praise him? Why would we worship him? You see, he wasn't only prophesied about. He's not only meant to be pursued in our search in this life for truth and for meaning and significance, but he's also the one who is worthy of our praise. One of my favorite movies, um, it's hard to believe that it like, came out like in 2000 or something. I think it was 2000. Gladiator. I love this movie. But I can't believe it's 23 years old. So, yikes. I feel a little old. But there's a moment in this movie where the main character is being questioned about his identity by the evil emperor, the evil Caesar, Right? And he's saying, gladiator, who are you? Who are you? Take your mask off and tell me who you are. And this is one of the most powerful scenes for me in cinematic history, especially within that movie. Because it's a moment where he actually reveals his true identity. And in that movie, if you've ever seen it and you remember this film, it was a powerful moment because he states exactly who he was because he knew exactly who he was. He says this, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions and loyal servant to the em true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. If that doesn't get you fired up, you know what I mean? It was one of those moments in a movie scene where somebody actually recognized their identity. And for some of us who can come in and out of church the question I would have for you is, do you actually know who you come to worship? Do you actually understand who this child is, his identity, and who he has come as, who he is in, of him, in and of himself? Do you actually know his identity and who he is? The question is, who is this child? And Matthew, throughout this storyline of his gospel, begins to write in such a way that we understand and we know the identity, the real identity of this Jesus, this child who was born in a manger. The scriptures talk about him. It says he is the offspring of the virgin's womb that we would sing about during this season. He is the seed of Abraham. 
He is the scepter rising up from Israel. He is the well of Jacob. He is the morning star. He is the son of righteousness who rises with healing in his wings. He is the great I am. He is the breath of life. He is the son of man, the son of God, the image of the invisible God. He is the great high priest, the incarnate deity. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's who this child is. And that's why we praise him. He is Christ, the king, not just a temporal king whose kingdom is built and then is destroyed, but an eternal king whose kingdom is from everlasting to everlasting. That's who he is. He's worthy of all of our praise, all of our incense, and all of our gold. He's worth more than all the stars of all the galaxies and all the sands on the shores of the sea and the depths of all the seas themselves to the height of every pinnacle and every apex of every mountain throughout the world. If you put it all on one side of a scale and Jesus on the other side, nothing in the universe compares or could ever begin to tilt the scale against him. That's who this child is. He's the one we come to worship. He's the one we come to praise. He's worthy of not only being followed and emulated, but he's worthy of our utmost and our uttermost. What are you holding back from the king? I think it's funny. I think it's funny how we think about our lives as if they're ours or our money as if it's ours. When the Bible talks about us, about us being like blades of grass that are here today and gone tomorrow. And we would be arrogant enough that we could come into church, come into worship and forget or not know who this king is. This child, this child, this is Christ the king. And we owe him everything. What are you holding back from the king in your life? Is it right living? Is it right giving? Is it right speaking? Is it the engagement that you have with the world around you or the lack of gospel engagement with those around you? Whatever it is, I can promise you that he's worthy of our praise and he is worthy to be worshiped. Quite an odd tension in this passage for me is sensing that somehow this king had to be protected. Why would a king need to be protected? Herod tries to kill this child multiple times. And three separate times in our passage, we read that an angel of the Lord interfered by bringing a vision and by speaking directly to Joseph. And in his speaking directly to Joseph, he's saying, flee, take the child away so he's not destroyed and bring him back because you'll be safe. And in each of those moments, not only is a prophecy fulfilled, but the king child is protected. But I thought about it and I thought, why would this king need to be protected? After all, even as I mentioned last week, Jesus was the only child who was born in order to die. So why would it be a bad thing for him to die as a child if, his point, if the point of Jesus' life was to give his life? Why, why was he being protected? You see, we protect presidents and important people, dignitaries, ambassadors. We, we protect them because they perform a specific role. They have tasks and assignments, work to perform. And the reason why Christ needed protection here is because he had not finished all of the work that the Father had given him to accomplish. 
Throughout Jesus' ministerial life, there was so much more to be accomplished. He needed to proclaim the good news. He needed to heal. He needed to bring miracles that verified the message of the gospel, that he was the king and his kingdom was inbreaking into our kingdom. And he was saying, I'm the king, and he had so much work to accomplish. You see, the lame had not yet leapt. The blind had not yet seen. Jesus needed to proclaim the good news and the prisoners needed to be set free, but all of his work had not happened when he was a child. He needed to perform the work that God had assigned to him. And all throughout the book of Matthew, Matthew writes over and over and over that Jesus had to do these things in order to fulfill all unrighteousness. So here's the most mind-blowing thing. In, in all of the prophecy that Jesus fulfilled, in all of the reasons why he's worthy to be praised, in all of that, in its immensity and its magnitude, here's what wild. Jesus had to do what you could not and undo what you did. You broke God's law. You disobeyed your creator. You stood against him in rebellion. And Jesus had to put himself under the law in order to perfect the law. He became the perfection of the law so that you in your sinful rebellion could actually be perfected through his work. And it typified on the cross. Jesus came to live the life that you and I could not and have never lived as fallen human beings that rebel against God and reject his rightful rule and reign. And Jesus had to die on the cross, the death that was meant for you and I, and he rose again to to give us new life, a life that you and I could never earn, which is not only abundant in this life through the freedom of his spirit, but it's eternal that we will see him again as the risen king in glory. Jesus had to be protected because you and I had to be perfected. When we think of the work of Christ and we come in to this season of Christmas, we have to have our minds framed around and shaped by and informed through the scriptures which tell us that Jesus himself is the son of God and he had to come as the son of God in order to be our perfect lamb who was sacrificed so you and I could be put in right relationship with the father. Listen, the Bible is really clear. You broke God's law. If you've lied, if you've ever cheated, if you've ever stolen, if you've ever had a lustful thought, you have broken God's law. And what happens when you break an eternal being's law? It requires eternal punishment, which is why he himself had to come and die so that we could be reunited with him, that we would know through his life, through his work, the goodness and the mercy of God which rules over the judgment that was meant for us. If you are here this morning, when we sing these Christmas carols and you don't really understand why, this is why. This is why we worship. This is why we sing this. This is Christ the King who shepherds guard and angels sing. He is worthy of all of our worship and all of our praise and all of our lives lived in total devotion to him. Grace, when we come and gather together, we come to see the babe in a manger who reigns as king over all. Let's pray. Father, we do glory in the fact that you have given yourself. By giving of your son, Jesus, and allowing him to be born of a virgin, that he would come and fulfill all unrighteousness for us. Jesus, I, I pray, 
Lord, that we would be confronted by your mercy. Lord, that we would be confounded by your grace, that you who reign over all would stoop down to enter into this mess that we call life, that we have made a mess of, in order that you can bring us peace. Lord, I pray for those of us who are just worshiping the wrong things. Would you reorient our hearts to you, Jesus? I pray, Lord, for those of us who have no faith. We are skeptics, Lord. I pray that you would bring sight to those blind eyes, that they would see you as the king that you are, who has come to not only forgive them and save them, but to call them to follow you to eternity. Lord, I want to lift up this body and ask, Lord, that you would use us and mobilize us for your glory, that, that the gospel would be proclaimed, that Jesus, you would exalt yourself in every heart and in every home, that we may see you and worship you as our king. In Jesus' name, amen.